0: This is Brain Inspired. I'm Paul. Welcome to this special episode of Brain Inspired. I say it's special because um, it's a panel discussion. I was recently invited to moderate a panel at the annual Bernstein Conference. This one was in Berlin, Germany. The panel I moderated was at a satellite workshop at the conference called How Can Machine Learning Be Used to Generate Insights and Theories in Neuroscience? And you're about to hear that panel discussion because the Bernstein organizers were generous enough to uh, let us record it and share it with you. So this discussion came on the second day of the workshop, after each of the speakers had given their talks. So some of what we talk about may lack a little bit of context, but in general all the speakers did a good job of kind of re-summarizing uh, what they talked about in their talks, so that it would make sense uh, during the discussion. There are also questions from the audience, and I cut most of the actual uh, question asking parts out because the microphones didn't pick them up very well. But I did my best during the discussion to repeat the question. So if it seems jumpy, it's just because I cut out the audience question and re asked it as best I could. As for the speakers, I'll let them introduce themselves in a moment briefly um, because I asked them to introduce themselves in the beginning. But I'll say right now who the speakers were in alphabetical order Katrin Frank, Ralph Hefner, Martin Hebert, Johannes Jaeger, and Fred Wolf, and you can learn more about them in the show notes at brandinspired.co/podcast/177, where I link to all of their information. I also want to say thank you to the organizers of the workshop who invited me, uh, and especially to Mohammed and Michaela, who uh, at least for me, ma- you know, made everything run very smoothly for me, made sure I was having a good time, and I know that they were working hard to like set up the recordings and essentially run the workshop. So thank you both uh, specifically and the rest of the organizers as well for having me. So like I said, the, the central question of the workshop was how can machine learning be used to generate insights and theories in neuroscience? But as you'll hear in the uh, discussion, we go over a range of topics kind of surrounding that central question. So I think it made for a really fruitful discussion and I really enjoyed getting the perspectives of each of the panelists. I hope you do too. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. The first thing that, we'll, that we will do here is go down our distinguished panelists. If you would just say briefly who you are and what you do, and if you have any pets, and then we'll begin. Fred, can we start with you, and then we'll yeah. go down the line.
1: So I'm, I'm happy to be here with you today, uh, and my name is Fred Wolf. I'm a theoretical physicist. I've uh, been working for 15 plus years with systems neuroscientists, cellular neuroscience, genetic physiologists, uh, still practicing um, rigorous, smarty ways to understand the brain. And currently my research interest is mostly on the frontier between evolutionary biology reconstruction and computational neuroscience.
2: My name is Rolf Hefner. I'm a computational neuroscientist at the University of Rochester. Um, I'm particularly interested in sensory processing, and especially through sort of the lens of probabilistic inference uh, interested in how neural circuits implement probabilistic computations.
3: Yeah, My name is Martin Hebert. Um, I am a computational cognitive neuroscientist um, so focusing mostly like on human cognition and representations um, and trying to understand how we uh, represent objects um, in our visual world. Um, I uh, work at um, Max Planck Institute uh, for um, Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig and this was Liebig University in Gießen, and I don't have any pets.
4: Um, yeah, hi, my name is Katrin Franke. I work at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, US, and I'm an experimental visual neuroscientist by training, and I'm interested to understand how visual information is uh, processed by the visual system, working mostly with the mouse as a model system and uh, using a combination of functional imaging and machine learning.
5: All right. I'm Yogi or Johannes Jaeger. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm an evolutionary systems biologist by training. I'm trying to do philosophical work in biology these days, and I'm interested in the differences and the relations between living systems and machines. And I have a cat called Max. Is that really
0: your cat in the picture that you showed? Uh, That wasn't my cat. That was not your cat. Okay. (laughs) I kind of pegged you for a cat person. So uh, this is going to kind of be a continuation of our discussion from earlier, which uh, I enjoyed. And some of you were not here for that, but so we'll kind of revisit some of those themes. But I wanted to start uh, by reminding us all of the, the name of this workshop, which is how can machine learning be used to generate insights and theories in neuroscience? And none of the talks so far have really addressed that and none of our conversation earlier really addressed that, that actual question, right? So we, we talked a lot about what the models are doing, how to improve them, how they give us prediction and control and how that's related to explanation. And I think that that'd be fun to continue that discussion. But if you could describe how machine learning, like the modern machine learning, whether and how it has sort of shaped your thinking about brains and minds um, throughout your research,
2: yeah, I'll jump in. Um, so I think there's a deep connection or similarity between the problem that the brain faces and the problem that machine learning is trying to solve. Namely, how to make sense of large amounts of data and try to extract, um, actionable, behaviorally relevant, um, insights from that. And so I see, you know, at least two ways in which machine learning um, can serve as an inspiration. For my work, it's been particu- particularly in terms of um, looking at what kind of algorithms and representations statistics and machine learning has come up with uh, to serve as hypotheses to then test for the algorithms or representations that the brain may employ. And that's really kind of the closest to my work. Um, the other aspect that i Try to mention yesterday um, is I think a big open question is what are the best levels of abstraction, uh, which observables in the brain, you know, spikes, membrane potentials, firing rates, whatever, um, should we try to model, and are most amenable and productive to model, and I think that's also an area where machine learning may may help us uh, find those levels of abstraction without putting in too much um, of our you know, intuitions, but trying to discover it in an unsupervised way. Anyone want to jump in? Please just, it's an
0: open discussion, mm-hmm. so just jump in.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, I think, like, as part of my um, talk, I was trying to, like, also, like, try to distinguish between different goals that we can have when we are, um, like, saying that we generate insights, or theories. And I think one is that uh, where machine learning can really help is that it acts as a, as a tool, as it's just like, okay, here's my tool set, I can use like these and these methods, and now we have like really these advanced algorithms available that can support our work. So, for example, um, uh, one thing, I mean, I'm just gonna cite something that we've done ourselves, is we were interested in understanding what are actually the um, different properties that people use in their language for describing different objects. And um, what you can do is um, you can ask a bunch of humans um, about like what are the properties of a cup and they will come up with a list of different properties. And now what you can do is you can take um, like large language models, you can show them examples of how humans have been answering these types of questions and then you can ask them to generate more such examples. And it actually works surprisingly well. It is actually almost at a human level. And what's really great now is you actually don't have to use um, like humans to generate this data anymore. You can actually ask now machines and this will now allow you to like get access to like almost human level um, yeah, understanding of how people are describing the world around them. And this is like a tool essentially. And on the other hand, of course, um, then what you can also do uh, is you can um, use these methods as models of whatever you are interested in. So for example, if you take like um, deep learning models, um, what you can in principle do is you can say, okay, I'm interested in understanding, um, like how does our visual system actually work? And um, we can build like different models that are um, competing with each other essentially for explaining like different, different phenomena. And um, you can look which of those models uh, is actually doing a better job. And by seeing which model is actually performing better, you can potentially gain some insights into the mechanisms underlying these, um, uh, these computations that, from which the representations then arise.
0: One of the things that we were talking about earlier, you, let's say using them as a model of a system that you want to understand, is how little variance they actually explain. So when you build a system that emulates the system you're trying to understand, would it be fair to say that you're coming at it theory free or I suppose in an unsupervised manner? So if, if that's true, if there's a lack of theory, then what what insights can we gain from emulating the system that we're trying to understand? Does that make sense?
5: It makes sense to me as a philosopher. What I, what I, 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 don't believe in theory free here. There is a theory. It's just a bit more a one suit. step remove yeah. from from what we're doing. And that one step for me is is uh, so my current project, which is not in neuroscience but in organismic biology more general and in evolution, is how far can we push uh, computational methods in biology? And so one way of um, using this really powerful method is to try and push it to the edge instead of uh, looking at what we can do, sort of look at, focus on where it breaks down. And, and I think that would be an interesting way of using it. Um, and, and that gets back to your question about variance. So, so sort of trying to, to understand, like we discussed before, what is variance? That's just, for example, coming from the, the, the measurement or, and what is actually biologically significant noise. It's a general problem in, in biology. And it's probably hard to get a handle on that, but if you, if you can somehow get a handle on that, it becomes really interesting to probe um, uh, really how far you can go with these models. And I think that's sort of using them in, in in this sort of weirdly inverted way is a very interesting way of using them. So how far can you push them, and and then what are the kind of phenomena that are happening in the brain that are not captured is a very interesting question.
4: So well, maybe uh, one comment I have is that. I think you're right that maybe in our talks, we didn't address um, the question like explicitly about like how uh, we use it to um, generate insights. And I think it's a very important um, thing for each like researcher who uses machine learning tools to explain what is the purpose of those tools. Like you said, you might use them just as a tool versus as a model of the system that you want to study. And I think it's very important to make this distinction. Um, because some of the limitations that come with the method um, are like valid and so it depends on the purpose of the, um, what's your ultimate goal, for example. And so I think one um, big advantage of the system is even though maybe we don't have, so we model it and we might not understand it mechanistically, but we can use this, it, it as a model of the function of a network or of a specific neurons or brain area and we can perform much more detailed and thorough characterizations that are disconnected maybe from the experimental limitations that we still face.
0: So everyone is comfortable using machine learning as a tool, right? How comfortable are you on a scale of 1 to 10 using it as a model for explanation?
1: Well, obviously it's like 3 for me. Yeah, yeah? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. As as somebody that actually cares about the physiology of cells or how a system like the private Venture stream gradually evolved or inje- jumps evolved over vertebrate evolution. Currently, um, machine learning based approaches haven't started really full fledged to contribute there, and that's where I see important open questions that are timely to to address. Um, but so I would like to 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 comment on this on this point of the missing variance, which I think is a great discovery. And, and machine learning based methods are both to be lauded for that. So when, when I saw missing variants fifteen years ago, it was because uh, the models probably couldn't were not powerful, they're not expressive enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah but now the the modern machine learning tools are nearly unlimited in their expressivity. And so we cannot blame it on the model anymore. If there's unexplained variance, it's a really, really finding and then on the other hand partially catalyzed, but not really driven uh, by machine learning, making its way into neuroscience. There's more and more clear view on that. There's more holistic processing in systems like the neocortex, there's more behavioral uh, information relevant at all stages of cortical processing. And the way forward is just to set up other kinds of experiments and studies in which we let the animal do what it wants to do with the body that it has. And that, that's not approachable insights without the machine learning approaches. So we can do that step, hopefully or uh, attempt it, but without machine learning, it would be undoable. even if I think current machine learning ones are the great ones of the brain.
3: Let me push back slightly on um, this like aspect with uh, like uh, going all the way up to the noise ceiling and like trying to incorporate everything because essentially what you said is like, well, the approaches that we have at the moment are limited. By um, us not being able to like, explain um, like certain variants that is, like, we're currently treating as noise. And I guess the, the issue that I'm seeing is that like, I think it really depends on the kinds of questions you're interested in, in asking and in answering, right? And um, the question that, like, and the way that we've been doing science so far is that we're trying to uh, identify like, specific phenomena and study them in isolation. If you're saying, like, well, there's no way this research approach would ever work, like, you have to take everything into account to really understand something, then I would have to agree with you. But if you take the more, like, traditional approach and saying, like, well, I can study, I don't know, object representations more isolated, then I think we can actually learn quite a lot um, about, like, um, by by using these methods. And we can really get quite some, like, make quite some advances in, in understanding what is actually what is actually going on.
5: So I would I would give him a two, even, <laughs> not a one, because um, I think as, as a tool, as you're saying, so the big question here is, again, what is the right level at which you understand? So there's a huge plasticity in the brain of the mouse and the human, at least. And so probably looking at mechanistic explanations in terms of the specific connections is actually not the right level to look at. But the danger, I think, here is... Uh, that we do this the typical systems biology thing where we replace a, a natural system that we don't understand with a computational system that we don't understand. Uh, and then the question again is this, uh, what we discussed before, what is an explanation? What is understanding here? And, and uh, as humans, we need to have the right level of abstraction because uh, the, the explanation needs to be sufficiently simple. We are really bad as opposed to those uh, machine learning algorithms that keep being high dimensional data in our brains, right? So we need to sort of uh, be able to to have an explanation that is low dimensional enough for us to to actually grasp uh, and to make sense of in in that sense. And I do think uh, that the the machine learning approach (laughs) is going to be more of a predictive tool and an amazing pattern recognition tool in all the talks that we saw yesterday uh, that allows us to recognize patterns that are too subtle or high dimensional for our human perceptive system and and memory capabilities to grasp. So I I was really impressed by that. Um, But I would agree with Fred that it's a um, model of how the brain actually works. They're quite limited, both in the sense of explanatory power and and accuracy of what's actually going on and having the right level of of abstraction.
2: Um, If I can chime in here, just to be controversial, I would give it an eight. Um, I mean, I think uh, it's a somewhat ill-defined question, right? what number would you give to the mouse model or to Drosophila? And um, these are all model systems, right? And you could also say, well, we've replaced by the human brain, we don't understand, by the mouse brain that we don't understand, or the Drosophila brain that we don't understand. But um, we've gone there because we now can use experimental techniques that we can't use in humans. And we have a good reason and track record in generating insights uh, that that, genera- uh, that, that generalize to the, to the human brain too. And I think the same can be said for um, artificial um, or basically machine learning-based systems of the human brain, because now, even more so than for the mouse or for drosophila, we can interrogate them in any way we wish um, and uh, ask, okay, you know, what might be more simple summary explanations for the complicated uh, processes happening in you know millions of, of computational units there that we can then go back and test in, in, in biology. So I, I think it's really useful. The, the other aspect I would say is, what is machine learning? I mean, uh, for me, machine learning in some ways, that's math, right? So if you include, I don't know, spiking neural networks, right? Uh, recurrent spiking neural networks, I see no reason why we couldn't get a lot closer to the human brain to even include mechanistic explanations and uh, be able to predict the outcome of causal interventions. Um, in the biology, I, I think we need to distinguish between what we have right now and the current approaches um, that we have and what, you know, that we might get if we keep pushing that research program.
0: Katrine, you have a, an experimental background and now you use these machine learning tools a lot. Uh, so maybe, could you reflect on how, you know, because an experiment, presumably you form a hypothesis and test it, although that never actually happens, uh, but presumably you do. And then that is supposed to generate insight, right? You um, interpret your results. Um, and in the machine learning world, it's, it's a very different world. I mean, do you, can you just reflect on the differences and maybe whether you think an experimental approach is more amenable to generating insights relative to a machine learning more or less amenable?
4: Yeah. So maybe before that, I just want to make the um, point that I think I agree with that it's very important to define your level of abstraction. And I agree that maybe the machine learning tools that I also use are not like a good model to gain like mechanistic insights about the circuits or the cell type like correlates of what we see. However, I think they are like a good model of um, each uh, neuron's function and how they represent like visual information. And in that sense, I have been surprised how well the models, although they might be like box models, um, capture, so when you verify it in the experiment they uh, truly capture the relationship between the visual input and the response, but also other variables like behavior, for example. And so as an experimental neuroscientist, um, I have been like, everyone struggles with like experimental limitations and it's kind of a dream to have a model where you can present all kinds of stimuli you want and predict responses and derive predictions to then, um, Plan specific experiments to test those predictions. And I think in that sense, it has been very powerful, um, yeah, in my research.
1: That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, so one of the great promises or the great perspectives of neuroscience now is how multimodal and complex these experiments can be. But that means the design space is so much bigger than what you can think through seriously. And so we need machine support to design. Experiments to, I mean, there are limited resources in time, in person, power, and so on. And for that reason, uh, there has to be a shift towards machine-aided experimental design. Yeah,
2: building on this, I mean, I mean, I think this is related to a bigger question of what's the role of simulation in the scientific process? And, um, which isn't, you know, specific to neuroscience or computational neuroscience. And, uh, I think this is just a special case of that. And, um, you know, active experimental design, trying to identify the experimental conditions that are the most informative for our scientific theories, um, is really important because experiments are expensive compared to the simulations that we're using to, to design it.
4: Maybe one question could also be that if I want to learn a relationship between the stimulus and a response, but also, let's say, an intrinsic goal or behavior, and I use a black box model and it learns a relationship and correctly predicts, let's say, um, the neural response to one of those variables. Maybe how it learns that is different from how it is implemented in the circuit. But then we could ask, do I care about that? And I would say at this point, I would not care how it's implemented like in the model because I'm using the output or the predictions of the model to derive predictions that I'm going to test anyway in the experiment. and then. Look at the implementation, maybe using other techniques.
5: I think there it's really important to recognize that the, the use of the model as a tool rather than a, an accurate representation of what a brain is, because uh, if we then you know suddenly forget that distinction, then then we draw all kinds of conclusions about brains. What was the book that uh, came out two or three years ago? The brain is flat, or something. The mind is flat. The mind is flat. And um, so that's that's a conclusion that I don't think is is immediately warranted. That's it carefully here <laughs> from from that sort of thing. So so there's a big difference. So I think I, I really love it how everybody is really actively reflecting on how they used to model uh for, as a predictive tool versus as itself a representation of how the brain works. And 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 that was a really positive surprise for me coming here and not knowing the community. So that that, that was really great to discuss with you guys. Um, because I think that distinction is crucial. And in the literature it's it's rarely made actually. So I wonder should it be made made more explicitly maybe also in print
3: I mean but, but I also have to say that I mean there are quite a sizable fraction I think um, of, of researchers really interested in using these methods as computational models of the processes that they're interested in understanding so in my field with optic recognition there's a lot of push for trying to actually build a model that is mimicking the processes that we think the brain is doing and it's Obviously, I think it's a really important, um, really important aim to achieve if you have something like that, because then you can start manipulating this model. You can try to like see, uh, well, what does the model not explain? And you're really like gaining a really much better theoretical understanding of what could actually be going on. Um, one of the issues I'm seeing with the approach, and that's just like um, where we are currently heading is that people are taking just off the shelf machine learning models. Um, fitting them to the data and seeing which model is explaining most variants. And um, in a sense, I mean, that's that's good. That's a good first step. But um, with this approach, you're obviously always limited by kind of trial and error, if you want, because like, well, you always find like new computational models. Oh, great. We can try these out. But you like, you're not necessarily building in specific mechanisms yet. So that's something that I at least have not been seeking that you can actually Get like if you want state-of-the-art predictions by building in like very, very specific types of manipulations um, that um, that really like reflecting
1: mechanisms. Maybe you can, you can go a bit further in that object recognition domain. Rather, um, and say something about the other term that we haven't mentioned here, which is insights and then this theories. <laughs> yeah, you know, what is a the theory to you? And so in, I mean, in the old days, like when I was a student, uh, the, the, I thought there's initially the two and a half dimensional <laughs> representation, and then it goes to uh, something 3D, and then I, I built categories from that, like Ma imagined. Uh, I would think you should arrive then as much better. But, so what, what is this theory, how can you use Deep neural networks that model the ventral stream to extract uh, a theory that gives us notions and relationships and, and something that you can express in a couple of principles and, and derivations.
3: Right. I mean, to me, it's um, it's it's a no-brainer that like you can't generate a theory just from data alone, right? Like you have to like you have to look at the data and you have to interpret the data and you have to make sense of it and you have to like generate a theoretical like understanding of it yourself. I think the um, what, what I find really nice about like using these machine learning approaches here is that it at least gives you the possibility of doing this because you have actually now the ability to simulate. You have the ability to look if it's actually expressing the types of behaviors that you would be expecting based on your theoretical approaches. So I mean, just to give you one example, let's say, um, and so I've re- discussed this recently um, with with Alex Ecker. Um, uh, just one example could be. Um, well, I'm proposing that, like, um, a, a device of normalization is, is a really, like, um, important, um, mechanism, uh, in, in the brain. And you can build in such mechanisms into your models and you can see whether these mo- uh, mechanisms would then actually, like, um, help you make better predictions. And from that, you can start to formulate, like, basic principles that would go into your, like, bigger theoretical, um, yeah, understanding.
1: So you're constraining the machine more and more to adhere to certain kind of processing principles or representational principles and then see if you work towards one that's still human-like, but understandable or more principled than I think at least, least that's optimization. Um, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. I think at least that's a hope. And, um, that's like one possible pathway. There's a lot of limitations, obviously, obviously that you can come up with, like, Oh, isolating individual like one uh, ones of these parameters, maybe they are actually only act in concert, maybe I actually have to manipulate all of them together to get the kinds of phenomena that you're interested in. But, but and, I mean, I think that's kind of the hope, yeah.
5: That's very far away from a sort of a ideal or myth maybe of hypothesis-free application of machine learning though, right, I mean, is there an acknowledgement <laughs> of, of that or is that, so I think that's still very widespread, this idea that we can infer interesting theory in the sense that you used it, the term, for it, just from, from reading patterns out of data. And that's not confined to neuroscience at all. Um, and I think that's a, a very, um, problematic way, um, to use these tools because they're very theory heavy, just in a different way. And to come back to, to Ralph's uh, comment about simulation, I mean, there's a really big philosophical question about that because, because of that joke I made before about replacing a natural system we don't understand with a computational system we don't understand. We now have the power to, to create computational systems that are just as obscure <laughs> as the natural <laughs> systems that we're studying, right? And that's that's going to become a really big problem and, and theory and biology in general, also
0: in, in the organismic and
5: evolutionary field that we need to
0: think about. It. Should we talk about dynamical systems theory? Uh, so a lot of people are kind of taking, Going back to the idea of what's the right level of abstraction. So if you reduce the dimensionality of a high dimensional model and you compare its dynamics, compare its manifold to that of high dimensional neural recordings, you find some interesting similarities, right, uh, while they're performing cognitive tasks. Just thinking about generating insights um, and theories at first pass, that's very exciting, right, because oh, it, um, there's a low dimensional structure this high-dimensional data that is shared, um, and I, I can describe both the um, natural data and the artificially generated data on the same kind of low-dimensional manifold. And so that has kind of sat with me for a while. And now I'm questioning: Well, what does that really tell me, though? Is a trajectory a thought? Not really. Uh, and what, what does dynamical systems theory? What is you know projecting it into low-dimensional spaces? What does that? Uh, gain us in terms of insight. Do you have insight on that? A- and is, is that a good level of abstraction?
1: The, the question of lower dimensional effective state spaces uh, is very intimately linked to our think about dynamical systems. That the search for lower dimensional state spaces is somewhat successful doesn't necessarily mean that it's the fingerprint of collective um, dissipative dynamics during the computation. There, so there. And so I think that's where my feeling is that we are just at the beginning. Yeah? So there, there's a task dimensionality yeah? that kind of puts a ceiling on how high dimensional something that you can systematically extract can be. And then even without feedback, if there's a lower rank connectivity in the system, it would confine the, the dimensionality of a representation even without current dynamics play a role but of course I mean anatomically we know that these are densely connected recurrent nonlinear systems so eventually the dispatchtor will also play a role and the aim is to understand how that is a tool for computation and things like persistent activity and, and working memory it's getting substantiated more and more. And in their beautiful experiments, like in Drosophila central complex, where uh, theoretical predictions from that uh, line of, of thinking and, and modeling made nearly 30 years ago pan out with every prediction. That's fantastic. But on the whole, in, in systems like primate brain or mouse brain, um, there, there, well, we, we, we should keep all the, these different hypotheses that can constrain uh, state spaces of neural. Um, states in the in the play. Yeah? I'm, I'm my expertise is not in systems, but I think it's just one one way to make sense of this of these discoveries, and we have to kind of test these against each other and become more systematic in in uh, nailing what's really behind particular low-dimensional uh, brain dynamics.
5: There's another really important limitation here, and that is that. Uh, these dynamical, classical dynamical systems have to have a fixed uh, topological uh, configuration or phase space, and that is not able to capture the organizational aspects of the brain because those are actually reconfiguring the system on the go. So you have uh, configuration spaces that are constantly changing dimensions and, and topology uh, qualitatively, and, and there is work like by Walter Fontana, was in the nineteen nineties, for example, about those limitations. You can show. That dynamical systems theory is a really big again. It's a tool that's really useful to to basically bring the the dimensionality of your problem down and, and generate understanding in that sense that you can actually <laughs> grasp something. But um, it has its own limitations built in, and and I think this is something we bump against. So you can then use uh, something like lambda calculus, which is another implementation of computation theory, but the, it's almost intractable. I mean, you can run programs in that, but it's it's almost Intractable to do analysis in systems like that. So again, you bump against this complexity barrier, where you're generating a predictive tool that is not <laughs> generating the kind of insight you're hoping maybe to generate in the end. Um, and this is something that this balance between tractability of the tools we have and the, the 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 ability of those tools to capture what's really important underneath the phenomena that we we are trying to explain is a huge challenge right now. I think in not just in neuroscience, in, in, in the life sciences and also social sciences, higher level agential systems in general.
0: So Yogi, um, your talk yesterday was arguing that brains are not computers. And a lot of what we discussed earlier this morning was in that vein. So if I completely agree with your arguments, I'm still left with wondering how, how that shift in perspective changes my science? Do I need to do anything different? And will, wh- what does it gain me?
5: No, the good news is you don't have to do anything different, but you have, so the idea of, so people have a weird um, idea about philosophy nowadays. And I think it has something to do with a lack of education in philosophy among scientists. And that is that if you have different philosophical worldviews, you have to have some empirical means of distinguishing uh, distinguishing them. But the problem is that even a, a really radically empirical view Sort of, uh, you know, the world is a mechanism, or the world is computation, is based on a bunch of unprovable assumptions, and so you have a s- set of assumptions that you have to base your knowledge and your view of the world on, and you have to choose from them. And ultimately, these are not empirically testable. So the questions should be different. The questions that we ask for the practical importance is what kind of um, uh, co- context does it give the 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 sort of work I do in the lab, which you know, like I have a, a master's it's called masters in holistic science, and to the day, I don't know what that is, <laughs> because science is not, it's, it's reductionist, it's analysis, you know, and the, the point is not that reductionism is wrong, but the point is to use it in its right context and to see it in its right context. So that's one thing. And the other thing is then, what is the range of questions you can ask legitimately in your field with this view of the world? And what kind of answers do you accept? And my argument is that if you switch your frame, like I, I suggest, then you just have a broader explanatory a, a framework with a broader explanatory potential than, than the, the, the mechanistic computationalist one. And so that's the practical implication. The question is not, is there an empirical test to show is the world a machine or is the world not a machine? No, there isn't. The choice you make and then you get a certain amount of explanatory uh, oomph from that. And I would argue, very practically, that the, the the view that the world is not a machine, the brain is not a machine, gives you more explanatory power in the end, um, and more a better grounded context for your empirical work. But the good news is, you can, if you if you just reflect on that every once in a while and you don't forget it, you can actually these methods we saw yesterday in the talks are super powerful. And and as, as you guys said, I mean, they allow you to ask ask entirely new questions. So it's great stuff.
0: So as a, as a tool. Um, uh go for it yeah does that perspective it's, oh please yeah you guys just yell out questions as well when does a model or tool become a theory it's repeating the question
5: <laughs> i guess i'll have to add to that so there's i would personally i mean it's a, it's not a black and white thing but it has it goes beyond just prediction right it goes uh, it gives you a sort of an insight in the sense that it, it either clarifies concepts that you're using or it puts them in a specific relation. And again, I always I have a very pragmatic view of what theory uh, should do in science and also a very broad view of what theory is. It's not just like a theory of evolution or broad theories like we have in physics. It can be a local model and it's, it's a conceptual framework maybe that you use to inform your empirical research. And I think it has to do work in the sense that it has to give you new ways of of querying your system. If it doesn't do anything like that, then it's not useful theory. Okay. So theory is not just there. This is armchair theory then. So uh, theory also has to do work. And it's interesting. Philosophers are increasingly looking at what theory, what role theory plays in life and neurosciences. And it's just, there is a lot more than we thought there was. It's just not the kind of theory that physicists have of the world, because the, the kind of problems we look at are very differently structured. They're more local, they're more diverse. And so it's, it's much more local, it's much more, but there's theory, like you have specific concepts that you use in a certain way and you have uh, local models that you use. And so it's much more interesting to see how is that working? And, and, and the aim is not to get an overarching grand theory of everything about the brain, but it's to understand specific phenomena, uh, what's happening and that's theory too. Me, well, but also in physics,
1: there are sub-theories, so for instance, I mean, there, we have light here, it's sunlight, and we all been taught the theory that that's because there's a nuclear reaction on the sun going on, and there were alternative theories to that, yeah? it's a nice example because there were no experimental studies of the sun, yeah? so like science comes from, comes from celestial mechanics, and there are no experiments in that domain. It's all inference. And so it's an example to remind us that so if you work toward theories, you can come to firm conclusions about really untouchable things far away. And I think that's a, that's a legit goal for neuroscience as well. So the, many of you uh, have the hunch or believe that there are these latent states, lower dimensional things uh, You can't observe them. They have to be inferred. They are inferred in that and that way. And so it's can you move this to a level where it's kind of conclusive evidence that, okay, now this study proved without doubt that there's this system of latent variables that's really what's going on. That's a statement like there's a nuclear reaction in the sun. And so that's where for me, that's that's a different activity than building a model, yeah? really caring about a certain qualitative class of explanations and whether they really pan out. Yeah? They should be able to be wrong. Yeah? So That's another way where there's a So the great advantage of these, of these modern models is they have so large uh, expressivity that they cannot be wrong. Maybe you don't have enough data to fit them, but they are, the models are never wrong. They are powerful to describe everything. That's why, why we have this great progress. But the theory has to be, has to have the, the feature that can fail. Uh, and be, and so There should be actually alternatives uh, if there's, otherwise, we are bound to uh, exhibit um, expectation bias through research.
3: I mean, um, there's a lot of philosophers uh, of science have been like thinking about this kind of question of what... Like, when does a model become a theory? At what point would you consider something a theory? What's the, um, like, how how does one theory evolve from another? Or how does this change across the course of science? I think in this specific context, I think we should ask ourselves, what do we mean when we talk about a model? Like, are we talking about a conceptual level description, like more descriptive model? Are we talking about a quantitative model? Are we talking about a mechanistic model? So these are different levels of description and... I think that for something to be called a theory, it has to be something more general than a model. I think most people would agree with that. So what is it then that makes it more general? And my guess is it has to do with the um, explanatory powers um, and the amount like, of, number of predictions you can generate from, from it. And something that I think most theories have in common is you have some very basic principles, something that like, works for a lot of different... Um, different, like, aspects of what you want to be explaining. So, is this say, for, like, a, a good model for, like, um, wh- one one phenomenon that we observe a lot in the brain is that you get this mirror reversal um, in retinotopic maps, right? Like, um, and if you have a good model um, of explaining why this is the case, why we find the regions and the selectivities where they are in the brain, I think that would then maybe, like, start to qualify as a theory of, um, Um, Like topographic organization in the brain.
4: Um, Johannes, may I ask, can you, um, do you have any examples in mind of theories you, that you would call like a theory in neuroscience or like broader, like life sciences or biology? I think that makes the point probably much more clear.
5: Right. So I'm not a neuroscientist. So, uh, I mean, the obvious uh, candidate is always uh, evolution in in biology, but um, it's also problematic because it's, well, it's kind of a good example because the, the the basic principle of Darwinian evolution is very simple. You need three things, you know, you, you need heritable fitness, basically, and some, some variation in that. And then if you start thinking about it, the actual implementation, just like uh, Fred said about physical theories, that the overarching theory there is very simple. And then the application to specific um, problems requires a lot of work to make it, into a working model. And then the particulars of how that works and, and also questions like, what is the right level of selection? What is the unit of selection become really hairy and complicated? Um, and so I think that's, that's a good, um, example. Obviously, um, not a very interesting or surprising. Obviously, if model. you think
1: of an organ system, maybe immune system would be an example. Yeah, quiet immunity. Okay, you can have a path list of all the genes and the scrambling mechanisms, and that there are antibodies and so on. But we have a conceptual framework for how acquired immunity is a systems function that emerges from the interaction of many cells. Um, and so that would be, for me, a theory of a, of a, of a disputed organ system where we have a handle. Right? And there must be something similar to how cognition and information processing and behavioral organization is generated by networks of, of nerve cells and other cells in the brain.
5: And also what you presented yesterday, that the idea that you can, you know, re- recognize these patterns uh, using a machine learning approach and the way you use it is highly theoretical, right? I mean, it's, a, it's an approach that can be generalized across different problems in neuroscience. And although it doesn't come as a sort of a, like an overarching theory like evolution of physical theories, it's, it's a theory, you know, it's a, a way of guiding the practice of empirical research across uh, a bunch of different contexts. I and mean, that already qualifies as a theory and it generates insights. So but it, it, uh, it would qualify as direct.
4: I guess you know, for me the most study. important takeaway from yesterday and today is that definitions matter, right? <laughs> and so what you mentioned or what the examples you mentioned about theories, like in biology or like in neurology, I wonder then, if it's like that high level, what would be the theory of neuroscience, right? Do we even have it yet? So I guess it's a it's a definition problem. What is the theory?
0: Can you define neuroscience? Oh. If we're gonna continue this conversation, <laughs> yeah, I'm not
4: sure I can define that. It's like everyone who goes to SFN or something. Right. Or I don't know.
5: <laughs> so why the theory, right? I mean, it can be a bunch of things that go together, practices, theories, <laughs> mo- models that are, are more local. And, and that's I think we really need in biology and, and neuroscience to move away from this idea of there's going to be a grand synthesis of everything. Because there's not going to be that.
4: <laughs> yes, I would have the question um, if I mean, if, you, if we have like these different definitions and it's important to clarify them and reflect on them, it also illustrates the limitations of the approaches we use. But then I would have like similar question, a similar question like Paul in the beginning. So if we come up with a definition of theory, what would that basically change about how I do the science practically, right?
5: I could say something to that. <laughs> but uh, so I think w- one problem we have in biology is a, is a, a, a neglect and maybe even a disdain for, for theoretical work at the moment. That's a real problem. So we are actually bumping into all kinds of uh, uh, problems at the moment, uh, which have to do exactly with the part of making insight, you know, big data sets, uh, uh, huge algorithmic approaches to learn from those and predict things uh, often fall short of actually generating insight into what we wanted to understand in the first place, which is how the brain works and how uh, maybe um, higher level phenomena can come out of that. And and so I think that's, that, that, that's how it's uh, actually important because it allows you to more explicitly reflect on what you're doing. And maybe that's like we had about eighty years of technological progress driving uh the life in neurosciences now. And and maybe it's time to sort of reflect a little bit now on what we're gonna do with those technologies. And and we have a bit more conceptual uh work to do at the moment. That's sort of uh one of my pet uh, peeves that I have with my fellow biologists, that we're, we're neglecting to do that at the moment.
0: But on the other hand, this is the time to run rampant with data and analyses because we can
5: Yeah, I'm not against, <laughs> I'm not against empirical uh, you know, data. That would be not very scientific of me.
3: Yeah, but I mean, this is actually, I mean, that's a really interesting uh, point that you're making, which is like, and I mean, I think we're all aware of it is that uh, we do have a lack of a theory and that um, in we, we have been like we were trying to model our individual little units and trying to like run our experiments but it's kind of difficult to put this all together into like something understanding the whole system or even like um, at, a, at, a, even at a specific level understanding like okay what is this specific like mechanism how is this actually implemented and and we're generating more and more and more data because we kind of realizing that, well, we need more data to understand this really complex system, which is the brain. And it's just like it's so incredibly difficult to understand what's actually happening in there. Um, and now we actually re- reaching a point where we have so much data that we actually like now have trouble even like making sense of that data again because like, okay, so this, you have this whole like, like universe of data in front of you. How do you extract the meaningful information from it? And um, yeah, and that's a big problem. And I am currently actually, I, I don't really know what is like a pretty great approach for, uh, for addressing this issue.
5: And there's a lot of, there's a model behind the data already. You, you decided to sample some things and not others and, and all that. So there's a lot of theory behind the data already. And, and I think uh, I'm not a neuroscientist, but in biology, In Drosophila Developmental Biology, they created these live uh, imaging um, constructs for for all the genes that are expressed during development. And they made these movies of of the entire development, only sample size one for each gene and and a huge data set. And nobody can do anything with it because you can't register the embryos against each other. You can't use the data in the end. And um, so we we created this data set. And and, uh, again, then it stopped short of creating insights. right? And I guess you have similar examples in neuroscience.
3: I mean, one issue that we have is the selection bias, right? Like mm-hmm. that people are selecting certain types of um, stimuli because that's what they think is like relevant, but we have no idea which stimuli are relevant, right? Um, in machine learning, people have been like for a decade, for almost decades now, is it for more than a decade, have been working with models that are like have I, I, I'm, like built for discriminating like hundreds of dark species right like and, and that's obviously not something that you want to be using for um, like <laughs> generating very specific insights about what the brain is doing right you have like dark detecting units, um, that's not necessarily something that's very specific. Some people are claiming that there's like dog, uh, dog preferring uh, parts of the brain, and it's obviously like I mean maybe uh, coming back to your question about the pets, right? Maybe like for some very specific people, it's the case, but obviously like this is not going to help us like generate the kinds of insights that we want. Um, so uh, so like, yeah, but then it comes back to the question, so what are actually the stimuli that we're supposed to be selecting, right? And if you do a completely like random kind of selection, I'm coming from the object recognition side, of course, right? If you're doing a random stimulus selection, if you go on YouTube, let's say, and you would select some movies. There, <coughs> um, and people have done this in the past. And um, then you say like, okay, I'm doing some like data-driven approach and the data will tell me what's gonna come out, guess what? Uh, one of the like really important components was cats. Because there's just a ton of cat movies so we're coming back to the same kind of issue here that like um, like yes we can can generate data but uh, we can generate masses of data but like uh, what the data is going to give us back is also going to be reflecting the selection biases that we're putting in when we are actually selecting the um, selecting the stimuli
2: I want to provide a slightly complementary perspective like one way to think about the whole scientific process in my mind is as model comparison, right I mean the data itself is not the end in itself, it's about the insights we extract in the form of models. And uh, how do we do that? We compare different models. We compare them with respect to their explanatory power. And so just having lots of data doesn't buy you anything really. Right. You really, uh, it only gives you insights in the light of models. And so, uh, you know, two things are needed. Number one, for the model, candidate models that you have or candidate hypotheses is you need data that can actually distinguish between them. And there can be lots of data that is equally or similarly, uh, explainable by any of these models. And then it doesn't matter how much data you have, you, you still haven't really gained new insights. And the other part that you need is, you know, a process to expand the model space and, uh, consider more and different models and, uh, then you know selectively go out and yes, you know, you may need lots of data to distinguish these most more esoteric or advanced models from uh simpler or alternative models. But uh if that's just if that's not a directed process but uh just a bottom up the data's gonna tell me uh how the world works, I think that's 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 not nearly as productive as it could be. Um so I, I think there is a lot of need for theory and there's a lot of need for you know uh, models and so model comparison, I think is the right way to think about scientific process, not necessarily hypothesis testing uh, by itself.
3: But what I find really interesting about this um, idea, and I, I guess you're also playing into the, like, the direction of like Tal Golan's um, like um, controversial, images. controversial images and um, like, yeah, experimental designs that really like distinguish between different conditions. What's really interesting about this is like, I mean, we all, most of us are coming like from this data driven kind of perspective, and it kind of turns the whole approach upside down again, because now what you actually need to do is you need to test, instead of saying like, oh, I can just use the systems identification approach and just testing all of these models against each other. Now you actually have to go back and you have to specifically collect data in order to distinguish individual models. And then like, you have to like, go back to the more like traditional cycle of how like science is, is, is working and which
2: is I would, what I would call. The right side up, yeah, (laughs) and not 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 upside down, right? I mean, uh, this is direction you should go, and that's where I think machine learning and simulation, etc., can be really helpful to exactly find those experimental conditions that are actually going to generate new insights.
4: Maybe I want to come back to uh, Johannes's point about the lack of reflection, and I think there's a lot of very careful science done in neuroscience, right? But I agree that maybe um, we all should reflect a little bit more about, especially now that we have the possibility to record as much data as never before. And if only then in the end, uh, the most important thing is like what you said, we reflect on the biases that exist before we do the experiment, right? We need to be aware of them um, before we do it and try to maybe uh, eliminate them or not. But I think uh, reflection um, is definitely something I guess all of us um, can use a little bit or at least I can tell for myself. Sometimes we're like trapped in our own little thing we do. And then it's, uh, this is, I think the most, uh, the best thing I take away from yesterday and today.
3: 100% agree. I think to add one uh, little thing to this, I think we also have to come together because um, what we're seeing at the moment is that like uh, lots of different initiatives are starting, like everyone collecting their own like big data set because people can, like these huge data sets now um, and uh, I think you could actually gain much much more if people were really like coming together like together deciding which directions they should be exploring and then actually like making a bit m- much more targeted exploration rather than just like um, maybe set several labs competing collecting the same kinds of data uh, rather than just saying like hey, okay you go this direction I go this direction both directions are equally interesting at the moment and then we just, together are actually going to figure out which, which direction is actually the right one.
5: So at this point, I just want to put a, a complaint in about the academic system that we've set up because it's not allowing this to happen. And I'm really happy for this workshop because it's one of the rare exceptions that has an unusual format that allows us to have this conversation in front of other people. But um, it's happening way too little, and that's also the fault of a system that only incentivizes the production of, of results, not insights. So, yeah.
0: What is happening way too little?
5: Time for reflection. So uh, we had this conversation yesterday about how, especially as a junior researcher, you don't have time for this, uh, and it should be part of your training uh, to set apart time for this, because the most important thing is to learn how to ask the right questions. And that's going to save you a lot of time, (laughs) save you, I don't know how you gain or save time, it's a weird concept, but um, it's going to save you a lot of time, let's say, uh, further down the line if you actually do something uh, that has an impact. Um, the, so I hear this over and over again that people say, "Oh yes, I'm interested in philosophy. I'll do that when I'm uh, retired <laughs> And no, this is this is not the kind of philosophy you want to do. You, the, the point of philosophy again is philosophy is a kind of a theory that is underlying your assumptions and it's supposed to do practical work in that it informs what you're doing. In your practice. And it, it, there is a lot of philosophy that doesn't do that. And so we need more targeted interactions between those philosophers that are useful for scientists and those uh, philosophers that pay attention to what scientists are doing. So they're a minority over there with the people, the minority over here that are in this workshop and interested in these kind of philosophical questions. And I think there really needs to be a synergy and a space. But it's uh, what I'm saying is it's really hard to create that space uh, at the moment in an academic system. Uh, that is not built for that
3: is it that would you what you want people to do is um, use the insights that they've learned from like philosophy um, to like also motivate their way of doing research or is it more that you want people to learn actually how to think in the structured way uh, for approaching problems uh, is this in a similar way as like a philosopher would like dissect um, like uh, the like theoretical way in which we actually are approaching the kind of the worldview that we're imposing upon our our research.
5: I mean both because one simple example is that the systems we're studying are extremely complex and underdetermined by the evidence. So there's often multiple ways of completely validly interpreting them, and there's so it's not a competition of who has the better model and who wins out. Often innovation, most of the time, innovation doesn't come from the mainstream of a field but from, from fringe ideas that are not lunatic, <laughs> but are well well argued, and we need to have more awareness of that. But if you try to get stuff published, it's not in the mainstream. I don't know if you, you guys have this experience, but it's very difficult. Uh, there's a lot of gatekeeping because there's so much pressure on people to publish and, and so on and so forth. But I, I could go on for days. It's just like if you have such a high, highly competitive system it doesn't allow for these things to happen. And if you had more people that are a bit more aware of these issues that science may not really work like the way they think it works, it's not quite as simple as that. practitioners of science, then we could build a lot from the bottom up and and create those spaces even in the current system.
0: What Martin was saying earlier about needing more shared reflection, shared data methods. In some sense, that's what we do have because everything is open source now. And there are these like international brain lab. I think there are these initiatives and huge collaborations. But, but the worry there, there's still value in, doesn't have to be fringe, but in, uh, I think what Tony Moshan calls it kind of a cottage industry approach where you have like these single researchers asking their own questions, generating their own data, doing their own experiments. Because when you come together, uh, you're losing out on potential creativity, right? So just in terms of how science progresses, don't we need both?
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think when I look at the field, I also, I would say I would love to have more diversity of different theories that then got tested, got tested rather than I think there's too much of a, um, you know, approach of going out to collect data to confirm one's own favorite theory. And, uh, and there I agree with Yogi. I mean, the, 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 structure of, you know, how the whole scientific process is implemented in a human system, uh, is not conducive to this. And I think we need to actively take measures to, to overcome that. And I, I did that yesterday a couple of times and I really want to, you know, advertise again the CCN, uh, mechanism of these generative adversarial collaborations that encourage, uh, researchers with, you know, they come from very different maybe theories, schools of thoughts, etc. To get together, find a common language, and um, identify experiments that could actually tell apart the different perspectives, rather than you know continuing what they have been doing and trying to find evidence in favor of their view. Exactly, but I mean that's exactly what I also meant,
3: and I think um, this is like not the exact opposite, let's say, of these like massive like data collection. Um, approaches that are happening. But um, what you, another really great example that's currently ongoing and many of you probably heard of this is like this um, also adversarial collaboration that happened where people now like testing different theories of consciousness against each other. And um, I mean, of course, you, you know, all the, the debate around it and like how it's been working out so far. Um, yeah, people discussing. Uh, but, but hey, I mean, it's really like um, shifted the field forward um, by like get, bringing people together and like discussing about like um what are actually ways in which we can test these theories against each other. I'm actually looking very much looking forward to the second round of testing because the first one seems to be pretty vile at the moment.
5: Right. Talk about an underdetermined
0: field of science. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: Robert, it's taking you three years to write a short paper with someone from that adversarial collaboration, right? So so um, debates are fun, right? Uh, but often they're not. Productive and that people simply talk past each other. Uh, so, and that's kind of my cynical outlook on the adversarial collaborations, that that is just simply what's going to happen. But you find the opposite?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I've been, uh, you know, I'm part of two, and both of them, I think, have really moved us forward. You know, it's, it's one, I mean, Looking at published papers is one way to evaluate the value or the contribution of these collaborations. But I think the much larger one is for the scientists that are involved, where it's clearly, I think, expanded everybody's perspective in at least putting more probability mass on the other hypothesis. And uh, you know going forward, even in their own papers that are not necessarily written with the other people, using a more understandable uh, language that both sides can understand. And, uh, so I don't think we've talked past each other. I mean, it would have been much easier to write a paper if we had just put in our perspectives and, uh, essentially talked past each other. Um, but what has taken time is, um, you know, agreeing on, on one language. But the, the other, the main reason why it's taken so much time, we could have written that paper presumably over a few weeks if that's the only thing we had to do. But, you know, the way science is set up. This, this isn't the main thing in our everyday life. This is not what pays the bills or what, um, you know, maintains our jobs or gets us, gets us tenure. And so, uh, it, it's clear that for everybody, right, it's not at the top of their priority list. And so necessarily it'll take longer and longer. I think it's actually a testament to how valuable it's been that we are still after three years, um, you know, now with the new semester setting up weekly meetings again on Zoom. Despite all the other demands on our time, to you know keep pushing this forward and hopefully, you know, mark my words, publish this before Christmas. Yeah, uh,
0: and as we all know, meetings always push things forward, right? <laughs>
2: but but they are they are completely voluntary for all of us, right? And uh, to how many meetings do you go voluntarily? That you know, if they're not productive,
0: as few as few as I have to go to. Exactly,
2: right? exactly. We all tried it, so.
0: We're just going to do a really quick uh, roundup finishing off, but we're going to start with a question from the audience. If it's a good question, if it's not, we won't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me restate your question. So there's no theory right now in neuroscience. We're pre-Newtonian. If you didn't study what your uh, mentor studied and you studied what you wanted to study, would you get to a first principle uh, that would allow the development of a useful theory in neuroscience? Is that a...
5: Yes. Okay. But you've mentioned Newton. Uh, this is exactly the theory we don't need in life and uh, neuroscience, the sort of overarching uh, theory of everything. And I would repeat again, the theory doesn't need to be like that, right? So, and I think I would uh, sort of maybe uh, provoke a, a little bit, say uh, cognitive science has too many th- theories, symbolism, uh, connectivism, uh, embodied uh, uh you know in action stuff like that and and it 's not even clear how whether they contradict each other or whether they 're just different perspectives on the same thing and and you 're right i mean the field is in a in a in a state where uh there is no decisive way of saying this is better than that, and so it 's maybe good to explore but i um would encourage you to open your mind towards what the theory is and say that there are different frameworks and different models and and they are also theory, just not the kind of theory you would maybe expect. From learning about the, the, the okay, so you make
1: me defend uh, <laughs> the history of <laughs> physics. <laughs> um, but I like I can take it down a similar road. So I, I think what they're saying is that we are pre-Capillarian. Yeah? So there are empirical laws to be found that tell us something about general principles, yeah? and that that should happen, on whether you believe there would be a Newton of the.
0: Grasheimer's, Kant, right? Uh, or, or, not. But this is why I mean, physicists should not become neuroscientists, people, because you think in laws, right?
1: Well, I mean, and, and then there's a, another thing. So I think we shouldn't short sell some of the achievements of theoretical and computational neuroscience. So there is a theory of expansion recoding. And if you don't understand that, you don't, you cannot properly think about certain parts of the brain, like dentate gyrus. And there's a, there's a theory of pattern completion. Now there's a kind of day-to-day notion, folklore of pattern completion, but there's actually a method, mathematical theory of pattern completion. And it's, if you don't understand that, you don't know how to think about CA3 in Hippocampus. Yeah? And we have a kind of, the, so an, a, a question theory of how uh, s- systems consolidation work yeah, that memory traces are shifted from one part of the brain to the other. It's not a complete coherent whole. maybe it never will be. but I would really uh, contradict that there is no knowledge in neuroscience that has taken some form of of theory you know?
2: So I want to say something controversial too um, I, I think we may have something, right and I think uh, the closest to it may be something like neural sampling. Um, based on the idea, <laughs> haha, right? Based on the idea that, um, you know, a stochastic mm-hmm. biophysical system. So, evolution has been basically created in the form of a brain that then learns to shape its intrinsic stochasticity in such a way to look like it may be approximating something that we call sampling from, you know, a more mathematical. Or machine learning perspective. And now how close it really gets, um, to that is an empirical question or how far that, um, idea takes us is an empirical question. But I think that, uh, might actually, you know, serve as a unifying idea for, um, you know, how stochastic neural activity, um, comes about and can be interpreted functionally as performing a computation, if I may say. that.
1: You have a question? Um, yes. Yeah, so right now, I would like to ask something. So, is that basically coming down from the idea that, that you can describe behavior as a as a, a statistical inference, basically because there's uncertainty in the world, and we have to navigate this uncertain world, and hence we have to perform probabilistic inference in order to uh, sort of. Extract the right variables and recognize things the right way, perceive the right way, and then that comes down to what individual neurons are doing in order to support such probabilistic behavior. And hence, is is that the line of thought we use in order to support?
2: Exactly. I mean, the evolutionary forces will act on the behavior or the output of the system, and um, the closer that out the output of that system um, to um, optimal by whatever useful definition of what it means. The closer some parts of that system, maybe close to the sensory periphery, um, they may be to what we would call statistically optimal inference.
0: Okay, so we're up against time, but final thoughts. Okay, so the again, the title is how can machine learning be used to generate insights and theories in neuroscience? So my my final question to you and Yogi, you can choose to answer this if you want to. Um, What would especially especially you two in the middle? How can machine learning be improved uh, to help generate insights and theories? What What would you like to see? What's holding you back in in terms of machine learning models, if anything?
4: So I think one thing uh, from my research specifically is uh, more like multimodal models. So um, that you predict neuronal response not only based on one modality, like um, the visual input, but also include other parameters that drive the activity. Like we discussed that before about the variance that we can explain. And I think that would be one important direction.
2: Yeah. uh, From my perspective, um, machine learning models that are a little more closely modeled on aspects of, of the brain that I happen to think are important, and beyond the, you know, distributed and possibly hierarchical aspects that are already, you know, incorporated, um, it's the stochast- stochastic nature of neural activity, um, and the spiking nature uh, of neural activity. And, you know, obviously there is a part of machine learning already that looks at uh, spiking neural network, recurrent neural networks. And, um, I think, uh, more work in that direction, how to train them, how to, um, do inference in them or use them to inference, I think, uh, would be really useful.
0: Fred, do you have anything to add? Yeah, well, I think
1: machine learning should be used well. Um, and if I have a specific, uh, wish. So one thing that's really low-hanging fruit, I believe, to gain insight, uh, is the direc- so the direction of, co- uh, of, of, comparative work, like human brain representations, non-human primate brain representations, other modern animal compar- comparative work. Uh, uh, in the past, My feeling is that the mainstream is to look for the general principles. But there's so much in these comparisons about key decisions in the design of neural systems. And so that that's from from a brain evolution perspective, should be low-hanging fruits that can be really informative on what are the strengths and the advantages of different experimental settings. And that give us insight into the deep history of this machine that we're all using to think.
0: Okay, Uh, I don't want to keep us. So thank you to the panel again for um, entertaining the discussion. And thanks for coming, everyone. I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon, access full versions of all the episodes and to join our discord community or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and ai consider signing up for my online course NeuroAI: the quest to explain intelligence go to braininspired.co to learn more to get in touch with me email paul at braininspired.co you're hearing music by the new year find them at thenewyear.net thank you thank you for your support see you next time